I'm Laura Vinroot Poole. For 20 years, I've owned Capital, an internationally recognized specialty store. Capital has never really been about fashion. It's always been about people. What We Wore was created to share the meaningful journeys that inspire me. From the designers and friends I meet on the road to the men and women with whom I work each day. Everybody wants to know her Jeffrey Kalinske is an iconic retailer whose namesake specialty stores changed the face of fashion in America. And he's always been my home base in fashion. He always just makes me feel like I'm home. Jeffrey is the first episode in our four-part retail mini-series. I am so happy to have you on the podcast. I am thrilled to be talking to you. I think you're in sunny Fort Lauderdale. I am in sunny Fort Lauderdale. I am in my bedroom and I'm staring at the ocean on a sunny, cool day. They think actually here that it's freezing today because it's 61 (laughs) degrees. And I was outside laying in the sun in my bathing suit perfectly happy. Do you remember when we first met? I, I mean, I, I remember knowing of you for so long and I feel like we first met when, and this is not in any of my notes, but when you briefly had a collection of knitwear it, with David, am I misremembering this? I think I met you with um, Rubenstein Kalinsky. In 98, David and I did a line of clothing called KR and yeah. uh, we did... Um, and it was my fault. <laughs> we attached our <laughs> names to it. So it ended up sounding like a Jewish law firm. It was a full collection that was knits and shirts and pants. Yeah. And we actually sold it, Laura. We sold it to two Barney's locations. We sold it to three Ultimos, to Savannah in Santa Monica to Linda Dresner. Well, that sounds about right because it was an incredibly luxurious product. That's the one thing I remember. The sweaters were incredible. Well, it was fun. It was fun. Jeffrey, will you tell um, the audience where you're from? I am from Charleston, South Carolina. (laughs) And I was born and raised there and left there in 1980. You grew up in one of the most extraordinary circumstances in retail. Your father, your family were legend in shoes. Will you talk about Bob Ellis? Because I know it as Mecca. I mean, I'm telling you. Yeah, no, no. And that's like, I love that because truthfully, I just thought that my dad was, you know, like the finest merchant around. He loved fashion. He loved selling. He loved selling. And I just, and, and he had great taste. And I just think I was blessed to get like 
the Retail Education 101 from Morris Kalinsky. Not only you thought that, I think everybody in the entire industry absolutely thought that. And I also think anybody that ever shopped in that store knew that. He could not have been a more lovely, gracious, kind, warm, welcoming. I mean, I think I probably learned as much as you did from him. You know, I just, I'd never seen, I'd never seen anything like that, that we, I would go um, when we went to the beach, we had a house at, near Polly's Island and we would go in the summers and I've just never seen, you know, women from all over the South would come and they didn't come to buy one pair of shoes. I mean, they would come and buy eight pairs of shoes. <laughs> and I don't think that, I don't think people do that at Bergdorf. Like, I don't know that that is a normal thing. Did, did you think, I mean, is that what you've experienced watching? Well, first of all, he loved what he did. Yeah. He had such joy for what he did. And I think that that was a wonderful thing. It wasn't even, it was even more than, you know, eight pair. It was 20. It was like, <laughs> it was like however many pair and however many handbags. And I just, it was a lot to live up to when, when <laughs> I opened, even though when we opened in Atlanta, we experienced some of that I experienced some of that women coming in and waiting for me yeah you know maybe having to wait an hour and a half two hours just yep. you know because they wanted me to help them and then selling them ginormous amounts of shoes and handbags and it being like this whole thing and I loved it too I loved it so much and I missed those days of retail because yeah. that really doesn't happen anymore. Well, I mean, do you think that was just because it was your dad who was the master at it? I mean, like he was the one who, I mean, he did it better than anybody in the world. I mean, was it that or is it, are those days in retail just over? You know, I have high hopes for retail, but I, I think that that kind of old fashioned shopping experience mm -hmm. is over i mean first of all like saturdays right. used to be our biggest day of the week mm -hmm. that changed a long time ago yeah. now i think you know saturdays can be a good day but it's no longer a day that people want to spend inside its stores you know shopping that way right and i don't i don't know that the loyalty exists either where a customer is going to sit and wait for that their one particular salesperson until they're free and enjoy the retail theater while doing it. Yeah. I mean, you, you should have walked into Bob Ellis in Atlanta on a Saturday in like 1992. It was crazy. <laughs> and this is just stacks and stacks of shoes around ladies. <laughs> yeah and just like knowing that last year we did 30,000 and this year we got to beat that and you know me going home at seven o'clock that night on cloud nine because we did fifty thousand dollars and I had a ten thousand dollar sale and I made a new customer and uh those were the best times will you talk to me a little bit about your dad how did Bob Ellis become Bob Ellis other than just your dad as a genius? I, I think it was 
my dad just being driven and my dad loved fashion and my dad didn't want to sell. My father believed and I, and I, I believe this too, that, um, that, you know, it wasn't always about price point and he wanted a mother and a daughter to be able to come in and he wanted like, like dad, like carrying lines like Unissa Mm -hmm. and Allure and things like that. So that a lot of people could afford to come in the store. Right. And, and he also liked his sales because he wanted people to be able to afford to have something really nice for less. But I just remember in the 60s or when I was a little boy, uh, so I was born in 62. So hopefully this was like very late 60s, like when my dad got Charles Jordan. Mm. And I remember looking at those shoes like they were just works of art. But my father was very driven to, to have the best of the best in his store. And I think that that's what separated him as a merchant. It wasn't about like what people in Charleston wanted. Dad never approached retail that way. He approached it that it was what he wanted them to have. And he wanted them to have the very best product, period. And, And little by little, he added on more and more of those lines I feel like by the 70s he was well established at selling fashion and you know a version of designer footwear you know he had Bruno Magli and Ferragamo and I remember him flying to Canada because he wanted to carry roots I remember how bad he wanted Samilari I remember Cherokee of California (laughs) <laughs> and all the kind of wedge, hippie kind of shoes of the 70s. And, but, you know, I remember him carrying Judith Lieber uh, towards, you know, late 70s, starting to add on things in the 80s, like Cleasure and Prada and all of that. And did you and Barry, your brother, did y'all grow up traveling to market with him? Yeah. Like, especially in the summer, you know, the, there was such a thing as a shoe show right. in, in the 70s in particular. And I remember I was like 12 years old going to the Fountain Blue to a shoe show in Florida, having <laughs> dinner with Joan Halpern of Joan and David. <laughs> she introduced me to lasagna. And I thought that was like, you know. <laughs> the greatest food anybody had ever, you know, she was like an anti-mame to me. She came to my bar mitzvah. I was so impressed that Joan Halpern came to my bar mitzvah. I'm so impressed. (laughs) And so when you went to college, there was no, there was no possibility and no interest in, in retail. No. And you went to, when you went to school in DC. I went to uh, freshman and sophomore year were at University of Florida in Gainesville. Uh-huh. And then junior and senior were GW in DC. And what did you study? 
I graduated with a degree in speech communications because I wanted to take theater classes and I didn't want anyone to think I was gay so I couldn't be a theater major so I was a speech communications major that makes me sad you worked in politics a little bit well the four years I was in college I actually sold shoes to make money and I worked in a like a really nice shoe store in Gainesville called Bill Penner uh-huh. And then in D.C., I worked at a really nice shoe store called Hess. Uh-huh. And my father made me do a stint for uh, Senator Hollings working <laughs> on Capitol Hill. But that was just not me. That was like, <laughs> that was my brother, but that was not me. I I just ended up being the the shoe seller in college. And when you worked at Bill Penner and at, and at Hess, was it really striking to you how different um, what your dad did was? I had an appreciation for what my dad did for sure. But, you know, the, the biggest takeaway I got from working from, for those people was how much I liked selling shoes and how, and I, I don't say this braggadocious, but how good I was. At. Yeah, I was going to say, I bet you were incredible. And because I never thought that I would, would like it. I never thought that it was ever going to be something that I would enjoy doing. Because as a kid, my father tried to make me work in the store and I was always so miserable. But I think it was because I was you know, under his thumb. I mean, he, he had very high expectations for us. You know, I have a daughter and she doesn't like being in the store. She works in the back room at the men's store. But one of the things that really I understood fairly recently was that the reason she doesn't like it is because when we're in the store, the client always comes first, like a hundred percent, the client comes first, no matter what. And so if she asks me that something and a client comes up, the client always comes first. And it's really awkward because as a mother or as a father, you know, your, your child comes first. And so it's this very confusing moment where I think she's like, who are you? Like, why are you ignoring me? And I wonder if maybe there was some of that with your dad, because your dad was such a showman and such a, he just was so in control of the whole room. Oh no, but like when I was 14, 15, and 16, I wanted to be with my friends on a Saturday. I didn't know the inventory that well when somebody would come in. And I would have to tell them if I wasn't thinking that they were going to buy something, I had to tell them basically that I did not know what I was doing. And please (laughs) don't leave. I'm going to go get my father. And like, I just found that so humiliating. I I just couldn't do it. And so I would walk the customer and then I'd get thrown back in the office for the rest of the day to do some sort of busy work because he'd get mad at me that I didn't come get him before I let the customer go. One of the things I've, I've read about you also is that your dad always told you that his mantra was selling things that you wanted women to women to have rather than what they wanted. Can you talk about that? Well, I just, I love that. I I just think that that's the success 
of Laura a capital, right? <laughs> yeah. And I think that that, I think that people really respond to people who can sell them, who, who can kind of educate them right. on, on, on the whole thing and sell them stuff they didn't know they wanted, sell them uh, designers that they don't know about. Because, you know, there's nothing really satisfying about wanting, I don't know, um, a, a, a black cashmere sweater from this designer. And because I had one and I need a new one and I go by the new one and it's all very transactional. Right. But when somebody can sell you something and, and, and you leave on cloud nine because you think you're so cool because you just bought this thing and it's made here and nobody really has it except for, you know, <laughs> I, 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 that, that's just, you know, the, the old, the old uh, thing my father used to teach me is if a woman comes in and she wants a red shoe for a red dress she's going to look like a stewardess but you sell her a gold shoe for a red dress and it can work with all these things in her closet that she didn't even know and she looks better she leaves happier and you made a customer for life because you you didn't clerk her, you, you yeah. educated her and you sold her what you wanted her to have, not what she wanted. Yeah. Yes. And I, th I also think that just having a point of view is something that is completely being lost in fashion. And even just knowing what you like, I always tell the girls at my office, you know, I don't really care what you tell a customer. I, I think you should tell them exactly what you think. I mean, exactly what you believe, what would you want? Yeah, and I do think, and I mean, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I think that a lot of the designers that I carry and that you carry, they are stripping us of the ability to be unique, yeah. you know? Yeah. I think they want us all to have look two and four, and if we don't have that look and we don't buy that, I mean, there's too many demands. We're not allowed to just buy what we like and sell what we like. I think it would be so, so much better for everyone because they don't need us to look like their own stores or their shop and shop at Saks. Yeah. They need us to kind of show the customer that, you know, Dior has like all this that you didn't even know they had. Right. I also think both of us being from the South, I mean, I think the thing, the advantage I always felt like we had and, and the thing that really did make us different was that you could tell a designer, honestly say like, you actually don't know how we live and how your collection could fit into our clients' lives because you don't even understand what we do. You know, you have no idea how we live. I mean, these ladies here get dressed to go to Bible study and to the grocery store. And so I, you know, but you don't, but the, but the designer doesn't understand that. My job is to interpret how they're going to wear that collection to that, to that Bible study. <laughs> A specialty store's point of view is the best weapon for all these designers. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're the ones with the relationships with the clients. After Bill Penner and Hess and after college, your first job in retail was at Bonwit Teller, which was a legendary store. 
Yeah, no, it was great. I moved to uh, Philadelphia and I was the sales manager for the Baumwitteller Shoe Department in Jenkintown, Pennsylvania. It was a Delman I. Miller lease. Mm-hmm. I was the boss. I had um, four employees. I had three women working for me that had worked there for like five years to like 30 years. <laughs> they were like 45 and 50 and 70. And then I had a 16-year-old stock boy, and they all hated me. <laughs> and, um, and I had to sell as well as, quote-unquote, manage. I was on the phone every hour with my father asking him <laughs> what to do. And in 10 months, they, um, they promoted me and they moved me to New York, and I became the assistant shoe buyer at Bergdorf Goodman, still working work- for I. Miller Delman. And did you work for, was Aaron, Aaron Niemark there? Was that, did you work for he him? He was, and so was Don Mello. Oh, but wow. I worked for Delman. But I did get exposure to Don Mello, and I did get exposure to uh, Sidney Bachman, who was um, in charge of the fashion office at the time. And the fashion director in charge of shoes, her name was Betsy Hussey. And she was uh, very talented, as was the guy that was the buyer for the the shoes at Birdroves. He was very, he was a very talented shoe buyer. And and you would know because you had grown up with a really talented shoe buyer. And so I, I would think that 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 would have been hard compared to growing up. So how did you how did you go from selling to buying? I mean, how did I get that promotion to assistant yeah. buyer? Well, and how did you know that that's what you wanted to do? I mean, how did it? I don't know. I think a lot of people, I think kids today, everybody who goes into retail, they want to be a buyer. They right? all want to be buyers. My God, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was just no different. I just, <laughs> you know, I wanted to be a buyer. That seemed like a career path. And I, I, I probably worked for I. Miller Delman for... I don't know, 10 months and 10 months is how long? Like a year and a half, is that yeah. it? Yeah. It might've been that brief. And then I got a job working for this guy named Poofy Dan Jerry. What? <laughs> yeah, he was an Italian manufacturer. He had his own line of designer footwear that was very a la Andrea Fister. Okay for anybody who might know what I mean, but he also got the license for Donna Karen. Oh, wow. And I sold his shoes and Donna Karen's shoes in North America. I was his agent. And I'm like 23 years old and I get this great job and I'm the agent of, you know, North America and Donna Karen is launching. I mean, she's like the hottest designer. It's like Donna Karen and Chanel in the world. Like she could not have been hotter. I was the one, you know, selling to Bonnie Pressman at Barney's. And that's how you met Bonnie Pressman and, and subsequently moved on to Barney's. Yeah. 
the week I got offered the buyer's job at Barney's, which was two years after I'd been working for Donna. I also got the, um, <laughs> I also got offered the buying job at Berdorf Goodman. And my wow. father, that was the first time I did not listen to my father. <laughs> and, you know, I, I always felt like that was an important life lesson to learn when not to listen to a parent. Right. He wanted me to take the job at Bergdorf. And I just felt right. like, like, why would I do that? I worked for that man. And then yeah. the man I'd worked for got promoted. And so right. I would have still been working for that man. <laughs> and and Bergdorf Goodman was Bergdorf Goodman. And Barney's was this new thing downtown, just really getting started. And I just felt like I could make a contribution there. And I don't know. I, I, so I went for that. And what was it like? What did you learn? actually there was a common thread that I learned at Bergdorf's and at Donna and at Barney's, which was, I came from a shoe background. And, mm -hmm. and like you said, I think, and I think my father could have done a ton of things, but you know, it was a shoe store and it, it operated with sh the thought of shoes. So I learned about what, the relationship between footwear and apparel was. Hmm. And I learned about image. I learned how important image was. For instance, you know, like Donna had a dictate. If you bought the clothes, you had to buy the shoes. A right. store could not not have the shoes. They were forced to have the shoes because she wanted <laughs> to complete the look and she wanted to complete the image. She, she should have. I mean, I, I don't, those clothes were so different and so revolutionary that they kind of didn't look right without her shoes, right? I know, but that was just all very new to me. Yeah. I didn't know that you could make someone buy <laughs> shoes. And then at Barney's, it was so much about image. Yeah. And it was so much about like being different and being around people like Simon during yeah. his heyday. And, and understanding, you know, how important windows were to a store and, um, and how that had something to do with image. And the Barney's placed a lot of importance in the relationship between all the accessories and the ready to wear of a designer and exclusivity and just, I don't know. I just, I learned tons. Yeah of good stuff and I learned some bad stuff yeah which is good to learn too <laughs> like what any anything you can remember specific I didn't have to leave and decide to open my own store but that experience made me want to have my own store and because you didn't you said I want to do this better and I will do it differently when I do it I just wanted to to stand for myself yeah I wanted to put myself out there and see if I, I was good or not because they didn't always make me feel like I was good. Mm -hmm. And 
I actually did a really great job for them. Yeah. And had I felt more appreciated, and this this could have been my own thing. This might have had nothing to do with them. These This could have been all my own baggage. Yeah. But had I felt like they thought that I was the greatest thing since sliced bread, I might have stayed and enjoyed trying to grow and learn there. But I did ask if I could grow and learn. And I, I just think I got pigeoned as, you know, the shoe buyer. Yeah. How long into it, like at what point did you decide to open your own store? How many years into it? How old are you at this time? Bob Ellis Atlanta opened on my 28th birthday. Wow. And was your dad supportive from the beginning? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> And did y'all both know that the location was Atlanta? First no. Okay. How did you? How did you come to that? And how did well, you? Well, I told that? him I wanted to have my own store, <laughs> and I wanted to open a store in Atlanta. And he told me I had to come work for him in Charleston first. And I said no. <laughs> and then he said that he would help me open a store in Charlotte, but not Charleston. I mean, not Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And I said, basically, no, but he kind of kept forcing that on me. <laughs> so I got on a plane one day and I have a cousin who lives in Charlotte, who still lives in Charlotte. She picked me up at the airport and she drove me around to, you know, the kind of places I asked her to drive me around to, which I don't really remember much. And I got on uh, the plane. I went back to New York and I called my father. I said, I, I'm not going to live there. I'm, I'm, I want to open. And it had nothing to do with Charlotte again. No, it's this small. definitely had to do with me. Well, it was, first of all, I, I walked into my first gay bar when I was 25. Yeah. And I was determined to try to figure out how to be true to myself yeah I still wasn't ready for to tell the world I was gay and when I say the world my mother and my father right (laughs) and I wanted to live somewhere where I I was going to feel comfortable as someone who was coming to terms with their sexuality yeah I just didn't feel like I could do that in Charlotte no but Atlanta was wide open and I, I just felt like there were a lot of business reasons why I thought Atlanta was a good idea. I mean, you, you said my dad's store was like Mecca. I mean, women were driving to Charleston from Charlotte, but from Atlanta in the by boatloads. And there was nothing in Atlanta. There was Saks and Neiman's, and they did not pay attention to those locations. They did not have a good offering. Atlanta was just wide open and Atlanta was, you know, the biggest city in the South. And I just felt like that was where I wanted to be. And when I called him that night and he was just like, well, okay, so no, I'm not going (laughs) to help you. You go to Atlanta, but you got to do it on your own. And 24 hours later, he said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll help you in Atlanta. And that was, yeah, that was that. 
I've, I've also read that you've described that time in your life as the greatest time in your life professionally. Why, why would you say that? Just I it- think for the story I was telling you earlier, I just, I just loved it. I yeah. loved building it. I loved, you know, I really loved selling so much. I don't know. I was just able to make such great connections with the women in Atlanta. I loved so many of them. I felt that they really loved me. They did. I loved the product that I was selling. I loved the way back then that you used to be able to go and buy. And it was just the happiest time of my life. And the minute that New York store opened, it just changed. And it wasn't because there was anything bad, but New York opened and it opened with so much business that it, I never could get control of it. Yeah. And I like having control. (laughs) And I had control of Atlanta, but, you know, two stores was like, it it just, that, that's impossible. When you have more than one store, you can't have the same kind of control. And that was a struggle for me. Well, and I think also, control being able to still do the things you love, which you had identified as connecting with women and selling um, and being around the product. And I think that when it grows to a certain level, you're just managing people. Yeah. And you're spending a lot of time buying and a lot of time traveling to buy. And yes, and you can't, my greatest fear was first a customer to have a bad experience. Yeah. And you have and, there's so many more people representing you that you you have yes yeah, so much less control in that I, I, that's a nightmare. Yeah, and it's hard for me to have people representing me. Sure, one of the things I, was on my notes um, from the producer was about Saturday Night Live, and I've talked to you about that just uh, in jest, but I also know that it hurt your feelings mostly because I know you and I know your dad and I know the way y'all do business. I mean, I think those skits had to hurt because that's just so not who you are and how you've ever run your business. How did you handle that? I know. Well, A, today, I wish I would have known how that kind of publicity can be (laughs) so good for business. Right. Like I really should have encouraged that there be more than three, (laughs) three of the uh, segments, but I was mortified. Yeah. I was like, I used to live in fear of waking up Sunday morning to hear there was another one. Yeah. Because it was, you know, the store got depicted and I don't really think it was the store. I really think they just thought, oh, wouldn't it be funny to do a sketch about retail being like this? And, oh, and there's this new store downtown, you know, mm-hmm. that we could base it off of. I, or at least that's what I was hoping back then. Maybe it was really about store. No, <laughs> but, no. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I just found it, you know, mortifying. But people, everybody but me, thought it was the greatest thing to ever happen to me. I mean, the greatest thing ever. And now 
I today I'd be very very proud to say we were lampooned on Saturday Night Live. Well, one of the things that's funny about it too is that um, I remember it in real life that that it was that it was on Saturday Night Live, and I, I remember people talking about it. And I thought, I think that I'd seen it. And then in preparing for this, I actually watched it and I was like, oh, I definitely never saw this. And I think you realize that like YouTube was, wasn't around then, you know, you couldn't go back. It, it was like, you had to watch it at 11 o'clock on Saturday night to, to, in order to really see it. <laughs> yeah. But tell me a little bit about the meatpacking district and sort of how that came about. And uh, that was a really brave move. I started looking downtown and I was kind of thinking lower Madison might be really chic, you know, mm -hmm. like I wouldn't be near anybody and the rents were good and I, I'd have a Madison Avenue address and <laughs> silly stuff like that. And my real estate broker wanted to take me to this building on 15th Street. Uh, there was a retail space. And I had heard about this place, Milk Studios, and I knew that Calvin Klein was having his show there. And like, there was like buzz, but you know, I, I didn't really know much. Mm -hmm. And she takes me in the back door on 15th Street mm -hmm. and we're walking down this long space in the dark and my father's words are going off in my head. It's like a bowling alley. And that was not a good thing. And then we like get towards the front and she opens the doors on 14th Street. And I just had this aha moment. Oh my God, this is 14th between 9th and 10th. Like I know where that is. Right. And... I, we literally went right back inside and the light is streaming in and I see the space and I love the space and I get all excited and I'm like, this is it. Like I knew this is, was it. And I've told this a, a thousand times, so I don't mean to bore you, but I also knew that 1975, I went to 17th and 7th from Charleston, South Carolina to buy my bar mitzvah ensemble. <laughs> And I figured in 1999, people could come to 14th <laughs> Street between 9th and 10th from Charleston, South Carolina to buy clothes and shoes. Like, it, it just made sense to me. I love it. And there was a petite abbey little sandwich shop on 14th. And we went from the store there. We called the landlord and we had a handshake deal. And I called my father. And from the restaurant, and I remember I was like staring out the door to the restaurant, looking at what is, would now be that Apple store, which was a restaurant called Market. Yep. And I just started to cry. And I told them I found, you know, Aww. I found uh, the space where I wanted to open my store. And did he support you right away? In that? No, he thought I'd lost my mind. <laughs> and when he came to see the space, he really thought I'd lost my mind. And he tells a very funny story that I have on video about the first time he went down there. I didn't know. I mean, it really, I guess it was called the Meatpacking District back then, but no one really 
called it the meatpacking district, probably only referring to the fact that there were only meatpackers there. Right. You know, now when you talk about the meatpacking district, it has like this whole connotation of nightclubs and restaurants and shopping. Back then, it just meant meatpackers. And I just thought it was, <laughs> you know, Chelsea, really. I didn't. Oh, it smelled like it smelled like meat. It, it and I like didn't. That. I love that there was nothing down there and like the butchers and the meat that didn't bother me. Like, I don't know. I just, I knew it was near the water. I like that. And it had cobblestone streets and I like that. And well, you know, you're I, the pioneer. I mean, it was you. Well, thank you. And, and was it successful right away, Jeffrey? Yeah. It yeah. was like crazy successful right it was it was so successful that it just made me nervous right like you know I was too democratic to not just let anyone in who wanted to come in when they wanted to come in but we really should have had like somebody at the door and been controlling how many people were in the store at one time because it, it would get dangerous I don't I, I, I don't want to overestimate that on a Saturday that first year there could be like a hundred people in the store at once with dogs and people and kids. I mean just like and it would make me just crazy because I wanted to make sure they were all taken care of yeah and there was no way to make sure yeah I can't even I mean talk about control like I can't even imagine and then talk to me Jeffrey about Nordstrom and how that how that went about well that was another you know, and, and that, that was really one of the greatest things to ever happen. But that happened kind of by accident, too. You know, when, I, look, I always had dreams. And I had this dream of turning Jeffrey into this brand that somebody was going to want to buy and do something with. Yeah. And I hired a company called Financo. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to sell the store or the brand. And no one really wanted to buy it. Like people didn't, LVMH and Gucci, none of them wanted to buy it. And I don't even know if they even ever considered it. But, and I, I remember like Bert Tansky formally rejecting it. Like he didn't see the value. Mm -hmm. Anyway, no one really wanted to buy it. And that was fine. Like I got over that, you know, because if in 2000, I wanted to sell it by 2001, I kind of forgot about that. Yeah. I was on to something else and, and the store was doing well and I was happy. And um, so anyway, a few years go by, I don't even think that I even have a contract with Financo that's even valid anymore because it just had been so long. And I get a call one day from a New York Times business writer that they heard my store was for sale. Mm. And I said, well, that's not true. And it wasn't. Yeah. They said, well, that's not what we understand. And we're going to write this article and we'd like to interview you for it. And I was like, my store's not for sale. There's like nothing to interview me for. <laughs> no story here. And they said, well, we are going to run a story whether you meet with us or not. 
so I met with them. And I don't know, you know, it's that whole thing. I'm not for sale. I'm really not for sale. I don't want to sell. They said, what if somebody offered you $35 million for the store? I said, well, if someone offered me $35 million for the store, I'd take it so fast your head would swing. (laughs) That became like the great soundbite for their article. Right. And it ran on a Saturday in the business section, like in September. Mm-hmm. And again, I didn't think much of it. And I went to Europe and I was standing outside waiting to go to the Dolce and Gabbana show. And I was chit-chatting with a woman named Sue Patnode from Nordstrom, mm-hmm. as I would do normally. And she said, are you getting a lot of phone calls? I'm like, what do you mean? She said about your store being for sale. I said, oh yes, my phone is ringing off the hook, Sue. And she said, well, I think you should talk to Pete. I said, Pete? She said, yeah, I think you should talk to Pete Nordstrom. Hmm. And I said, well, you know, and she gave me the number. I said, I'm not going to do anything until I get home from Europe, but I will call him and then every time I saw her on that trip she was like did you call Pete and I said no Sue I told you (laughs) anyway but I eventually called Pete I got Pete Pete was beyond nice Pete came to New York we had lunch the lunch led to about I guess like an eight eight month courtship Mm -hmm. and on August 18th of 2005 Nordstrom bought I think it was 51% of my business. They went on to buy 90%. How did that make you feel? Was it, was it relief? Was it, would it make you nervous? Did it make you? uh... I mean, it was all of it, but I think the biggest emotion or the, the thing you'll be able to relate to, I signed, I'm done. I'm in the car going downtown to have like a celebratory lunch with my three besties. Mm-hmm. And I am hysterical crying right? <laughs> because I felt like I had sold my baby. And so that started 15 years of, of working with them. And tell me all the things that you did with them and, and how, what was it like folding back into a sort of a more corporate environment? You know me, I'm kind of unfiltered and <laughs> I'm kind of, I'm kind of top down and they're bottom up and yeah. I'm all about control and they're all about, you know, collaboration. And so, you know, I think the, the, the headline is they always made me feel like they were the lucky ones, which had, I felt like that maybe all those years earlier at Barney's. Yeah. You know, but that's, that's the, their magic. I mean, it was such a wonderful way to feel. I don't think anybody else would have made me feel like that. I think everybody else would have made me feel like I was the lucky one. They're a special family though. I mean, they're, they're so unusual, aren't they? Yeah. I got to come up with a strategy to really have an impact in creating a real designer business for them across 25 to 50 stores which they really and didn't I, have at all did no they? and I think it's no. interesting too they've had great customer service and they actually really did have a very a, a pretty respectable shoe business correct 
Yeah, well, they they like my dad were kind of known for shoes, and they still are. Yeah, and they're known for customer service, which is was another cultural thing I could relate to. Yeah, and but they didn't have a strategy, and I think it's important to be strategic and to stick to a strategy. So I I was in charge of that across all categories. So I got to work with their entire merchant team. And that was exciting. But what was also exciting was to work with PR and to work with marketing and to work on their advertising and where their advertising was Mm -hmm. and to work with their store planning on what a designer department should look like and what should the fixtures be like and to travel to their stores and to talk about customer service and to work on private label product and just the ability to go like almost anywhere and do anything if it had to do with designer for them was amazing. And then the pandemic happened and they shut me down. I mean, that must have been so painful not to have control over your baby and your, I mean, your career. I, you know, I don't know if I still understand it yet. Yeah. It's still like a bit of a process. There's still a lot of pain and there's some anger. Yep. And there's some relief mm-hmm. and there's some peace. Yeah. Um, there's just, there's a lot that I don't understand. I kind of, I've got a couple of mantras right now. One is the acceptance of loss Mm -hmm. while being open to joy, you know? And I'm I'm trying to accept the loss and I'm trying to be open to letting uh, new good things in. My, My therapist today told me something that I thought was really helpful. She said, pain plus reflection equals progress. Yeah, that's true too. (laughs) And I think just, you know, pain, I mean, you have to at least look at the pain and look at why you have the pain. And that's the only way you move forward, unfortunately, I guess for me, but you're so young. And I mean, you have, I mean, you are so talented. You have you have the world to give. I mean, what do you think is next? What are you, what are you thinking? Yeah. You know, my first idea was I really wanted to go work at Lily Pulitzer. Uh-huh. Um, I just, like, I love the story and I think it's so American, iconic, and well, you'd be I back love prints and color and I wanted to help them create men's and, and work on the women's and go after, like, all the stuff and they you know a big company owns them and they're doing really well and that was what I wanted but you know they didn't really <laughs> they, they weren't they weren't uh opening the door to let me in they're like well thank you <laughs> thank you for that interest um but that's kind of the vision you know I think I'd be really good at something like that. And I, 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 I like when things aren't about their price point. Yeah. You know, like I love Sperry Top Siders because they're Sperry Top Siders. 
Right. And it's it's and I love Lacoste shirts. I like Speedo brands, Speedos. I like iconic brands like that. Yeah. I'm I'm hoping maybe uh, when things do start to get better, there will be somebody that wants either their business to be better or they'll be trying to build something and they'll be small enough to let me be the person to be the strategic product person for them. Well, talk to me a little bit about what you think the future of retail looks like. I don't know what the future is of regular retail. I'm sure it's good, but I mean, if we ever get to what we can call after this, I just think the world's going to be different. Everything's going to be different. And every podcast, we ask our guests what they wore to the prom, and I cannot wait to hear what you wore. God, my memories are just so hazy, and I have pictures. <laughs> I would imagine, just knowing me, I would just imagine it was, you know, some rented classic black tux and white shirt and black bow tie. I mean, I, I definitely would not have been on trend with a ruffle <laughs> shirt or powder. You know, yes. Charleston was just so traditional. And well, my wait a school minute. was so traditional. And what about, what, if, you, if you don't remember that, what about the bar mitzvah outfit? Oh, well, that I, <laughs> I can tell you. Okay. I good. wore, well, Friday night, I don't remember who the designer was, but my father made me buy a cream, a double-breasted blazer that came down to like my knees. I really did not like <laughs> the Friday night outfit, oh, but oh, okay. I loved Saturday <laughs> morning and Saturday night. Okay. And there are pictures. Saturday morning was powder blue, three-piece Pierre Cardin. That is fab. Oh, I loved it. And what shoes? Saturday, I don't remember the shoes. I'm sure my father sold me like some (laughs) Bally shoe because Bally shoes were like the nicest men's shoes back then. Yeah. Saturday night was like a Bordeaux magenta. Uh, three-piece velvet Pierre Cardin. That is fab. I would love to see My mother wore Hannah (laughs) Moray. And my father looked so chic, too. Wait till you see my dad and my mom. It was was great. She's so lovely. You're so nice to do this. Oh, I loved it. What a treat. What We Wore is produced by Capital and Balto Creative Media. The original song, Someone So Enchanting, was composed and performed by Britt Drazda. is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com.